questions. Um, in, in regards to a fifth class, uh, there will be a fifth class, and uh, we, we, we do not know, I do not necessarily know when that's gonna be. Next Sunday is our singing Sunday, so will not be next Sunday. Um, but uh, we'll get communication sent out in regard to that. Again, real quickly, just our goals of the study. Uh, we're looking at biblical guidance in regards to how the local church uh, uh, spends its money, and we're, we're trying to be very thoughtful and thorough in our study and, and look at, um, uh, you know, our attitudes, our hearts towards one another, towards God. We want to make sure that uh, the, what we do is uh, in keeping with biblical guidance. And we want to preserve the unity of the spirit uh, in the bond of peace. Um, we want to make sure that we are acting in God-honoring ways. Um, and if we do not agree, and I, and I suspect this, we, the further we get along, the, the more that might uh, happen. And so we need to be kind of watching our hearts and our attitudes um, as we dive further into this study, uh, that we act in a, and communicate in a God-honoring way. Um, by, by way of reminder, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Um, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we want to demonstrate Christ living in us. Um, and so, how do we let God's word direct our steps? We'll briefly recap what we talked about last time. We'll, uh, we'll try to finish that up and then talk about some specific questions that uh, have been gathered. Um, so God and Jesus reign supreme, uh, as, as Brad uh, you know, talked about in the announcements this morning. Our audience is the king. Uh, in, 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 the in the context of worship, our audience is a king. And what we want to do today is no, recognize that God and Jesus, that they reign supreme, and we want to please them. And how can we best be pleasing to them? That's what we want to uncover in scriptures. Uh, and it's only through scripture that we're going to know God's will. And that um, what we bring to this table are attitudes and hearts of humility and gentleness, patience. We're going to put up with one another in love. And we're going to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace so that as a group of saints that worship here at Avon, that we can grow together and mature in Christ and the knowledge of him and that we are striving to maintain the unity of the faith as it talks about in Ephesians 4. So just briefly, we talked about uh, last time about biblical authority um, you know, three ways that we derive authority. So when I say authority, I also want us to be thinking about just being pleasing to God, like acting in, in ways that are pleasing to God that we can derive through his scripture the, the things that we should be doing. And three ways is that God tells us to do something, he shows us to do something, um, or he implies something that we are to draw some conclusions from. Uh, when we think about commandments, they can be generic or specific. Use the example of going to the store. If I tell Allie to get some bread, she can get any bread. But if I tell her to get gluten-free bread, she better get gluten-free bread. And then taking it to the uh, implication, if I just say, hey, Allie, get bread for your mother, then the implication is that she's going to get gluten-free bread. And so we see that at play. 
Um, when we think about what's lawful, then in the, in the umbrella of lawful, there are some things that are specified, right? And we talked about the Lord's Supper, that uh, the bread and the fruit of the vine, those are very specific. And by nature, specified commands are then exclusive to other things. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Some things, though, are expedient or that we use, or that the, and when we talk about expedient, the things that um, we do to facilitate the execution of God's law, right, or God's will for us. Um, we are to gather together um, and assemble. What is a, an expedient or a judgment that we can use is the time that we do that. And we know that um, those things that are expedient need to be uh, under the umbrella of uh, what's authorized, as well as it has to be edifying to the group. And so uh, meeting at 4.30 in the morning may not be expedient because it may not be um, encouraging or edifying. Um, so I think that, pick, that takes us to, as, a, as a quick catch-up. We are... Um, I, I, I didn't put this in the email. I don't believe I put this in the email because I wanted you all to come back. But we are... You know, we, we got sideways on the Lord's Supper a, a little bit. I mean, it wasn't necessarily something I planned on, but I think it was good conversation. I do want us to revisit that a little bit and uh, tie that off, uh, hopefully, um, and when we think about authority and what's pleasing to God. And I think, um, I don't think it's going to be controversial. I think, you know, it's just a, a way to summarize some of the things that we were talking about. Command example, necessary inference, tell, show, or uh, tell it, show it, imply it, and so forth. Um, so we'll talk about that here in, in just a few minutes. Uh, Mitch, if you could lead us in prayer. Lord, we are thankful and humbled that you are gracious and merciful to us, and uh, that we uh, that you preserve Scripture for us. We uh, pray that as we are Uh, gather together uh, for this study that you would help us to see uh, your truths and your principles, that we would be able to apply them in a way that is glorifying to you, that uh, we are uh, being mindful of each other, that we are showing love, and um, that we um, seek truth. Help us to not put things in Scripture that we uh, think are there and help us to um, overcome difficulties uh, that we might have with each other. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, let me get organized here on my notes. All right. So when we think about biblical silence... um, you know, conversations I've had with people at work in the past where we uh, differ on uh, many different things relative to Scripture, some of those come from just a fundamental difference in how we view biblical silence. And so it's, it's important that we understand um, when we think about biblical silence, does biblical silence give us authority or not? I do want us to think about real quickly, though, Um, the difference between an unspecified command and biblical silence. And so when I think about, when we talk about uh, an unspecified command, um, that is, uh, you know, our our command to assemble together. There's no specifics around that. And so it's 
under that, you know, under that command, we have, like I, I said a couple minutes ago, we have the ability to make judgments as to um, when we assemble on Sunday, uh, on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, we have some, um, we have the ability to use discretion and wisdom uh, to meet at the time that um, is edifying uh, to this group, right? Um, the Bible does not say anything about that we have to meet on Sunday morning for at 9.34 Bible class and 10.34 worship service. But that, again, falls under the unspecified command at which we use wisdom and discretion. Uh, there are other things uh, that we think about biblical silence that, are, that cannot be tied to the methods of communication that we've already discussed in terms of we can't look at Scripture and say, this has been commanded to us. We do not see where God has shown us anything on this. And there's no passages that we can go to to say that there's an implication that we can draw about this, right? And so when we think about, well, let me, add, let me pause there. Does that make sense or are there any questions on that? I don't know if I said that well, but um, let me know if you have any questions on that. The distinction between the unspecified command and biblical silence. Yes. Into the biblical silence category. Biblical silence. Um, and so we're, I'll try to use one that I'm not going to use a little bit later. But um, I, would, I would say that, I don't, and again, I want to try to stay away from things that are too controversial. I hope this isn't one. Um, there are, well, let me think of a different one. That's, I, I'm sorry. I just don't, I really don't want to, I don't want to really step on toes. Here's, here's one, um, well, <laughs> maybe, yeah, Mike, go ahead. Yeah. So there's a biblical silence that I think that we interpret one way, and 60, 70 years ago, people that we may have worshipped with interpreted another, mm -hmm. and that would be um, Bible classes for all ages. Mm. Um, so I think we have biblical silence there, and I mean, honestly, there, were, there was a split in the church over that, and there are still groups that believe that that is wrong because there's no authority for that, because it's all about biblical silence, right? But yet we see that as maybe falling under an expedient instead of biblical silence. So I think that that maybe is, is an example you could look at. Yeah, what I would, yeah, and I, and I would, again, I would agree with you on the expedience part, um, how I would view that, but some might view that as biblical silence, and then at, under that view, they would say that that biblical silence does not provide us the authorization to do that. Um, you know, there's uh, ways that we are, you know, I'll just say one, like wearing a, women wearing a skirt to church, right? The, the Bible does not... Um, address w how we are to physically wear our clothes, right? Um, I don't think that's a really good example. Let me, let's, let's just strike that from the record, um, if, you, if you will. Let me, here, let's talk about the Lord's Supper. Okay, I know, I know. We are off to a great start. I know we had the conversation about um, Sunday versus Monday. Um, why don't we 
observe the Lord's Supper on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday. And what I would say to that is um, the Bible is silent on us gathering together for the purpose of the Lord's Supper on those days. And so my viewpoint on that is that then we, we would not have the authority to do that on another day because the Bible does not, God's word does not give us the authority to do that. Um, that would be an example. We are going to talk about that in a few minutes. So I don't want to cut that off, but I'm going to so that we can make progress. We'll come back to that. But that was an example, perhaps. Okay. So um, I did provide several different, several uh, passages on um, biblical silence uh, for us to consider both in the Old Testament and the New Testament so that we can understand when God does not address something, what should our disposition, our attitude be towards biblical silence? I got on here, is it restrictive or permissive? I want us to think about it in terms of, is it, does it give us authority to do something or, or, or do we not because we, we don't have authority because God is silent on that. I've put a few of these on this slide, not all of the ones that I've referenced, but I do want to read through some of these real quickly. In Deuteronomy 12, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all of the wor words of this law. In Joshua 6, 7, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. John 8, 31 through 32, if you abide in my word, you are my truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 2 John 1, 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of, uh, of one against another. So I brought up these scriptures to show both, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, attitudes towards scripture in terms of us being diligent to look at the things that God has revealed to us and being diligent to stay within the parameters that has been revealed. Some of the things that we then in scripture, we know that are pleasing. And then I also called out a couple of examples then where we see biblical silence in practice. Um, Zelophehad's daughters in Numbers 27 would would someone like to, if, someone, if, you, if, you, if you read that, summarize what's happening with Zelophehad's daughters and, and, and specifically then as it relates to biblical silence? Well, we have instruct the, the the Israelites had instruction about how uh, land and inheritances were to pass within a family, and it involved the passing down through the the, the sons, 
uh, and in Zelofehad's situation, there were no sons born, and it looked like that family line was going to come to an end, so the daughters raised the question, should, should our family line come to an end just because we don't have any sons in the family? Uh, shouldn't we receive that inheritance so that the family line will continue? That's my take on that. And so the, the question had not been addressed specifically. There was no teaching in that regard. And so they had to inquire of God, what do we do in this case? Mm -hmm. And in response, then God gave instruction and gave an answer to that situation. And in, the, in that particular instance, God said, well, they are right. They should receive that inheritance. But it was not clear until God gave instruction because prior to that, there was silence. Yeah, absolutely. That's, and that's what I wanted us to come to the conclusion when we read that passage in number 27, is that when things were not addressed, Moses, though leading the people, did not take presumption to um, understand what the will of God is on that. He went to the Lord, the Lord responded, and then they dealt with that accordingly. In 1 Corinthians Chronicles 17, we have another example with David in the temple. Um, so David... Um, you know, spoke with Nathan about building a house for the Lord. Nathan says, you know, do, do all that is in your heart. And then the Lord came back with a response. Um, what was the Lord's response uh, to that? And, and no is not the appropriate answer, but what, what was the sentiment that the Lord responded with when he told David that that wasn't, um, that wasn't approved? He basically told him that um, he's never asked for a house to be built. Is that the answer? I mean, yeah, I that's going on, but that was kind of the gist of it. Yeah, that's, that, that's the gist. When have I ever asked for a house to be built, right? And so the, the kind of the, the conclusions that we can draw, um, we do need to be careful relative to presumption about what the will of God is and understanding that God has revealed his will to us. And, um, and we can, we have the ability to look within it and understand what is pleasing to him. Yes, Leanne. I don't know if I took the wrong thing from that, but I also took from it that even though he had never asked for a house to be built, he did want it to be built and he had a plan for someone else to do it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe I would want your opinion on is our summary of that, that he shouldn't have asked? Or is it just that, I mean, it was okay with God. God did want it built. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, God, so God's intention was for a house to be built. Uh, his intention was not for David to build it. And so um, some presumption, on, on perhaps on the, on the part of David and Nathan, that David was to be the guy to do that. And God says, if I wanted you to build a house, I would have asked you to build a house. Now, obviously, that's a pretty big paraphrase there. Um, but then God graciously revealed what his plan was for David, or for David and for Solomon, in order to execute um, that will. But, um, again, um, in the absence of a temple, um, a house for God, it was presumptuous of David to, 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 to presume that he would be the one to do that without the will of God being revealed to him. Tommy? 
I think um, God does say to David later in 1 Kings 8, 18, it was good, you did well that that was in your heart. It was a good intention. I think the difficulty was with Nathan's answer. Mm -hmm. Nathan's answer was do all that's in your heart because, you know, it's, David asked the question inquiring of Nathan because he is a prophet. Mm-hmm. Nathan thinks it seems good. Nathan says, go ahead. But in fairness to Nathan and David, when the Lord spoke clearly, both of them listened. Yep. But, yep. but um, I think it's, it's more presumption in Nathan's On Nathan's part. part than David. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. We've got a couple, couple hands over here. Uh, Brad and oh, Brad, you've got the mic. Yep. yep. Sorry. Yeah, I was just gonna say, um, <clears throat> it it is it is interesting to to even find a, a something that an example we can use that's free of all controversy. You know, and I mm-hmm. think it's okay that we embrace that there are some things where we are interpreting and we're applying the scripture the the best we uh, have been the best it's been revealed to us and, and with our best wisdom and and i don't want to uh let that hang but um in the lord's supper example um you know the the very first lord's supper was three or four days before the first day of the week with the actual lord so um to say that we have and i'm i know i'm kind of picking on you with that one and i i don't mean to uh stir the pot necessarily but i do want to acknowledge that there is not silence completely because Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Paul refers back to it. I'm doing this just as the way it was instructed. Um, and so um, there, there is some biblical example there. And so I think uh, the other thing, and then I'll have all my comments out. Um, your first slide, um, tell, show, and imply. Um, I think there's another element not on God's part but on our our part to interpret and apply Um, for example and it was mentioned last week that even for commands direct commands there's some interpreting and applying there for example four times Paul says you should greet one another with a holy kiss and that is a direct command it couldn't be any clearer he tells it to the Romans Thessalonians and twice to the Corinthians so we don't do that because we understand there's some culture on top of that and some, uh, I, I, or we're applying some other things by other than show, tell, and imply, right? So there's, a, there's something else in the mix there of interpret and apply based on the wisdom and reasoning that God has given us. So, and then that I think comes into play with other discussions and, and is, might impact um, maybe some of the questions. So. Yeah, and so um, we'll talk about the Lord's Supper here in, in, a, in a couple of minutes, so I appreciate that. Um, in terms of, of how God communicates uh, to us, certainly tell, show, imply, and then on all of those, we need to uh, understand, we need to try to uh, understand the implications, we need to draw conclusions for, from all of those. Uh, Josh Sater also talked about, after the last class was, there's also another one around um, just statements of truth, um, that like God created the heavens and the earth. There's really not a command example necessary inference on that, it's just, that's a statement of truth. So, um, just wanted to add that in there as well. Is there another comment? 
Mike. So when I think of this implying, you know, sometimes it's called a necessary inference, and maybe if it's necessary, if we all, would all agree there, there'd be no controversy at all, but implying involves making a decision where God is silent, right? So just because God is silent doesn't mean it is always unauthorized. Because if we imply something, that means God did not specifically tell us. So he was silent about this. So we are implying or we're making a decision based on his silence through other things that we can or can't or we should or we shouldn't do something. So I don't want to... I don't want to, for me personally anyway, I don't want to necessarily draw the conclusion that if God is silent, that means that it, it, nothing is permissive based on that because implication is wrapped around this silence from God. Yeah, certainly unspecified command, right? There's, there are conclusions that we need, we need to draw um, in, God's, in God's word. Um, let's, let's get to this next example here in Hebrews, the seventh chapter. Um, and, and see if this helps the conversation. So Hebrews 7, verse 12 through 14. So the Hebrew writer is talking about Jesus and the necessity then for a change in priesthood and, and why that is. So let's read verse 12. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served. For it is evident from that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. And so the conclusion is, is that if Jesus is going to be prophet, priest, and king, there has to be a change in the law. Why? Because Moses didn't say anything about, uh, about anyone from the tribe of Judah be, being a priest. So there's, there's some silence on Moses' part about Judah being excluded from the priesthood, um, the only command that we have is around the priesthood being through the tribe of Levi. It was not necessary for Moses to say, all right, not from, not from Judah, not from Benjamin. There is silence regarding priests coming from any other tribe except for the tribe of Levi. Does that make sense? I would also say then in Nehemiah the 7th chapter, connected to that. So in Nehemiah the the 7th chapter, the wall's been completed. The Levites had been appointed. There were some Levites who were claiming priestly descent, but they had no proof. And so the, the silence of authority or documentation to say that they were of priestly descent is the situation. So how did they handle that situation? Um, so there's these men in 61 um, who, who came up from these, these places. I'm not going to name those. Uh, but they could not prove their father's house nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. Um, there were 642 of them in, in verse uh, 62. Um, the priests, the sons of uh, Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, uh, verse 64, they sought their registration among those enrolled in genealogy, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. 
The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with the Urim and the Thummim should arise. So there is a situation where there's no documentation, there's no proof, there's no evidence, there's silence on their genealogy. They're making these claims to serve as priests. So how is it that they should handle this situation? Well, the answer for them was not to take this uh, ambiguity and this silence as permission to move forward with them serving in the role of priests, but they waited until they got an answer from God through the Urim and the Thummim. And as far as I can tell, they never got that answer. And so 642 men, you, you think about the importance of the priesthood, think about you know, reflecting upon what the priesthood meant to Israel, what that would have meant to, like if we were part of Aaron's family, what that, how important and significant that would be for us. And these individuals are left out because they couldn't prove the authority from God for them to serve in that capacity. And so when we think about, when we think about where God does address things and where we, we don't see authority in Scripture to do something, uh, what I wanted to impress upon you with uh, the Scriptures from Deuteronomy, from Joshua, 1 Corinthians, the examples of Zelophehad's daughter, the examples of David in the temple, this example of Nehemiah and what we saw um, in Hebrews is that we need to take a very cautious approach. Um, and when we don't see something addressed in Scripture and we can't come to a reasonable, con you know, an implication or conclusion from a generalized command, then we need to make sure that we aren't being presumptuous and acting without authority. Go ahead, Gordon. Yeah, I've been thinking about this and fin talking about finances. And if we're saying silence forbids, where do we get authority to borrow money from a secular organization to fund the Lord's work and then pay back maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars of interest out of the, the uh, treasury? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to write that down because we, we do want to talk about our authority to have a, a building, and, and part of that can be um, our authority to borrow money. Um, on that. So I am going to table that, uh, but I am going to write, take a minute to write that down. One of the things that we did talk about last week, though, is just the concept of, um, so I don't want to leave that totally hanging, the concept of we've been authorized by God or commanded, authorized by God to do a thing, to assemble, um, where uh, expediency or judgment or um, discernment and wisdom come in on how do we execute on that thing uh, without, without changing it, right? So we, uh, as God's people, were commanded to assemble. Um, we are going, uh, how can we do that? Well, we have purchased a building under the authority of expediency to do that. Um, there will be more, we'll talk about that relative to the financing, but just as a concept, um, that's something for us to think about. Chris. So from the comments that have been made, it seems like it's difficult even to come up with an exact example that doesn't have some other 
I don't know, you know, judgment involved in it. You know, even yourself, we were trying to think of one that's universally thought of as, as a silence. And I think it's a little confusing. Even on this example, it was more the silence of the people than it was the silence of God. He told them what they needed, but they couldn't prove that. So I'm a little unclear with that. It appears to me, though, in every one of these, we have to read this passage, and we have to judge based on the context and the rest of the word what exactly it's saying to us, which I think we're going to have to do regardless of what the silence is. So I don't know if maybe that's the pattern instead of trying to say that silence is the pattern. Does that make sense at all? Well, I don't, I don't know. Um, what, I w- what I would say is a th- the question I, I have on this is authority. Did they have the authority to act as priests? And so in the absence of the will of God, which they were going to wait for in verse 36, they didn't have, they didn't have access or they didn't have the authority to act on that way. And so, so examples on... Um, on instrumental music, on, um, you know, the, the, I think the b- biblical silence comes to that. I, I was hesitant to bring that up earlier because I, I did not want us to take a hard left into instrumental music, right? But that would be an example, I believe, on, on biblical silence um, and the authority that we would have in worship to, to use instruments. Um, maybe not everyone feels that way. And again, that's, there are a few examples like that. I was just kind of hesitant to bring those up. So, yes, Rissa. Oh, wait, I learned from last time, not... Since you I'm brought just, it I'm up. Just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I'm just, I'm struggling as someone who was raised in the Church of Christ and has been told all my life that um, we are under the new covenant. And so that is where we find our authority for what we do. But all these examples that you've put up here are from the Old Testament. And I think some of them specifically were talking about the law of Moses, which clearly we're not under anymore. And so I'm, I'm struggling to say, okay, this is a legitimate um, authority for that. If we can't look at the Old Testament and say they used instruments all the time and bring that forward into the New Testament. So that, that's a struggle for me. I've got to say it, it's, um, it's a stumbling block for me. Yeah, and, you know, I think there's, what we see in Scripture is the, the use of the Old Testament to provide instruction, um, to provide patterns, to provide examples. So, like, we may have heard growing up that, okay, we're not under the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament informs um, how we are to do things, our attitudes. It informs us on what God expects in worship to him as well, right? Um, and... Um, I think I've got a couple of references here. It'll just take me just a second um, to pull those. I'll come back to that. But there, are, there, are, there. Are, we, in fact, I think we talked about this uh, this morning about in First Corinthians nine about what was written about muzzling the ox was actually written for. For their benefit, our benefit, right? Um, the instructions, um, the examples for them, but are written for our instruction. And again, I can get those references. Tommy and then, and then Craig, or Tommy Goat and then Craig. 
it is true that a lot of that the examples that you have given, you know, from the Old Testament, what we have in the Old Testament is we have the law revealed through Moses and God spoke through him, gave instructions to him. And then you have a thousand years of history of how they responded to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it is going to be different than what God gave us in the New Testament where you don't see the long history of how they responded. We do find... We do find some things about how New Testament writers use the Old Testament, and like you did mention Hebrews 7, mm -hmm. you know, in, in that particular regard. You see how they use the Old Testament, but you do have, I do think what we're seeing is a way people responded to what God said, to God's revelation. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what you have, a history of like in a Nehemiah 7, mm -hmm. where the priests are from Levi, and the priests are from the family of Aaron specifically. And, you know, they don't just go by these people's word but for it. They are members of the family. You know, there has to be some kind of way to establish that. Right. Craig? Uh, the passage in Hebrews 12, uh, 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I believe that we make a mistake if we, we talk of God as one who long ago used to care how he was worshipped, but then Jesus came and God no longer cared. We can now just do whatever we, we can't read that in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. God speaks of acceptable, pleasing worship in the New Testament. Right. So the conclusion cannot be, it's up to me to decide what is pleasing and acceptable. The real question is, what is pleasing and acceptable? And it's up to, it's up to diligent study of God's word to determine that. But the answer cannot be God no longer cares. Right. And the references I was uh, looking for a little bit earlier were 1 Corinthians 9 um, and 8 through 12. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Right. And so... We'd, we'd certainly need to take very seriously the, the things that we see in both the Old and New Testament. Brad? Um, yeah, so in, in this Nehemiah 7 passage, um, so the governor told them they were not allowed until they, uh, to partake of, of that, that the priest would. It says, until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. <clears throat> Is that saying that someone would come and determine whether they were priests by casting lots or some divine revelation? Is that what the implication is there? That's, that's the implication I take from that. There is okay. a disposition from God on their ability to serve as priests or not. Gotcha. And that, that has biblical precedence. I didn't, I did, I'm just now wondering, so if, was that prescribed? Like if someone couldn't prove that they were the line of priests, then you would invite a priest with Urim and Thummim to make that determination? Is that, was that prescribed? And I'm, I'm I, I wouldn't be able to comment on that. I don't know if anyone else can. It's Tommy. Deuteronomy 17 did describe that priests um, use their judgment in such matters. That was particularly dealing with 
uh, that was particularly dealing with the decision of of guilt or innocence uh, in a in a civil case. But mm -hmm. priests did have the um, right to inquire of God. And remember when Eliezer is appointed, uh, Josh was told in Numbers 27 that you will you know, guide the people and you will lead the people and he will inquire of God via the Urim and Thummim. That's in Numbers 27, verses 15 through 23. The other was Deuteronomy um, Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13. Thanks, Tommy. Brett? Yeah, so my the reason that I ask that is if the priests were using their judgment to determine, you know what, these people aren't, they can't prove that they're priests, so what we're going to do is have a priest that will make that determination. You know, were they using their judgment to prescribe something that had not been revealed as how you deal with that? Um, and it sounds like, and I Again, I didn't spend, I read through this, but I didn't catch it until now that um, if, if the silence of the scriptures were binding, then there would be no ability to, uh, you know, come up with a, a way, an, an additional way, add on top of it that you could determine if someone was, uh, um, had the authority to be a priest, like they were in the right family, right? Um, so... And I think that's that's kind of where uh, maybe the the distinction is here. And I appreciate Craig's comment that we we want to make sure we're not assuming God doesn't care. I, I don't think anyone is assuming God doesn't care. I think people are assuming God has left it to us to execute. For example, God said to meet. And since he didn't prescribe meet in this type of building on these days only and do only these things, it is left to us. Not that he doesn't care. He's left a whole New Testament for us to read and determine and use his spirit to reveal it in the scriptures and in, in our hearts to help us have judgment on how we're going to go about meeting and what that should look like and if we should have Bible classes and and overhead projectors, and not that God doesn't care about any of those things, but that he has left it to our judgment. So I just want to clarify that I don't think any, I haven't heard anybody say, God doesn't care what we do. I have uh, heard that God uh, wants, uh, God hasn't revealed every uh, tiny um, thing because there are some things that are general commands. If there are general commands, he's left it to someone's discretion and wisdom to execute that command. Craig? Sure. And I, and I apologize. I, I don't mean to imply that I've heard that. So I, I probably sp spoke presumptuously. Um, what, I, what I meant to say was um, God has always had a preference as to what he wants in worship. He always has. That preference has changed. With the, with the old law, he wanted animals burned on a regular basis. And clearly, that's, that's not what he wants anymore. Um, so I just want us to be careful that we don't assume that God now no longer has any kind of preference. And mm -hmm. it's up to us to determine his preference. That, that puts far too much on our own judgment. Um, 
God has a very specific way that he describes we are to put on Christ. He says we do that through baptism. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it, it can't be up to my judgment as to how I put on Christ. Um, so there are. There are certainly examples where, where God leaves it up to our judgment. We just have to be very, very careful um, that we don't say, therefore, it is all up to our own judgment. That, that's what I mean. I hope that's clarifying. Right. There are some things that, some things we're going to come up that are going to be in the realm of unspecified command. There are going to be some things that we can't tie to biblical authority at all. And so on those matters, how do we handle those? And that's what I want us to be thinking about. And to Chris's point, this is difficult stuff that we've got to, we've got to wrestle with this, right? Um, and when there are matters that fall outside of what we have been given authority to do, um, how do we react to that is the question um, that we need to consider. Caitlin? I guess I've just noticed, um, and I would welcome insight into this. Um, in the Old Testament, it seems like the specific way that God wanted worship, he was very um, clear about that and gave directives about that. And we always say that those, the laws and the directives were to show us God's heart. In the New Testament, I see I don't see many specific directives about worship. So can we say we know specifically, how much can we say we know specifically that God wants from our worship besides the character and heart aspects? Yeah, and I think that's the nature of the inductive Bible study, that we need to look at the scriptures and through the, the commands that he gives us, the examples, the implications there are certain things I, I feel very confident we can look at his, his scripture and say, we are, we are pleasing to the Lord when we gather together and when we partake of the Lord's Supper and when we sing praises. Because we can see these are the things that the apostles commanded. These are the things that the early church did together. And we should use those as positive examples. We should feel comf comf confident that... God has revealed his will to us in this way, and we should do those things. And I think as we can look at scriptures, when Paul talks to other churches, he says to do what we did over here um, and not, and he, he did things the same way at, at, at churches as well. And it, and it, and it wasn't um, everyone just kind of figuring it out for themselves, but Paul, through the Holy Spirit, was revealing to them. And so I, I agree that the Old Testament was very prescriptive in terms of do this and don't do that, and, and God was very detailed. Um, I do see counterparts to the worship God sent up in the Old Testament in the New Testament as well. And again, we can learn from that, and we can, we can apply that to what we are to be doing and the attitude and the, the manner and method in which we execute that. I don't know if that's helpful. All right. So, um, Brian. Oh, we got more. Yeah, I, got I, I was a little too, too slow. I just should have, no, I'm just kidding. No, this is good. Mitch and then, and, oh, okay. 
So I, I have said from the pulpit many times and in classes, I'm very principle-driven. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out how that fits into command, general, specific, imply. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm landing on it being general command, um, but I'm not, I guess I'm struggling to think through. I feel strongly that I see principles in Scripture and that we need to adhere to principles. I may be struggling to connect it to where it fits into those. Yeah, I would say that without implication, principles don't, don't have any teeth. They don't mean anything. Unless we look at the principle and then we make application to our own context, right? I would say that, you know, the scripture is lots of principles, but there's lots of commands as well that um, different from, from principles where we might take a concept um, and then yeah, apply it to our own context versus, you know, I don't think anyone's going to say we should, you know, we should lie or commit adultery and things like that are very prescriptive in scriptures. But I would say that principles, there's some implication there, right? There's some conclusions that we need to draw on how do we apply that principle to our, our own context. Um, Anne and then Tommy. Um, I was thinking about uh, Ritz's uh, comment about the, using all of these, repeatedly using Old Testament examples to um, as kind of an underpinning to where we're going. And um, I think that, well, because the New Testament tells us repeatedly that, you know, the Old Testament is for us to learn from that the validity in using a lot of Old Testament examples is just, again, speaking to the character of God and how he interacts with his people and what he wants, what he has always wanted from his people and the heart that he wants and the style of obedience he wants, you know, wholehearted, full obedience. And so I think it's legitimate for us to use a lot of Old Testament examples, and, you know, along with New Testament examples for an underpinning for our approach to obedience and the that doesn't necessarily mean that we bring everything that was okay we do have a new law so everything under the law of Moses isn't okay under the law of Christ and then I had just I don't know how other people feel about this but I have thought a lot over the years about, I guess you would call this extra biblical evidence mm -hmm. of um, what we know just from very early writers in the church who were still living when the, a lot of them were still living when the apostles were still living or shortly thereafter. And just in their writings, we get more, you know, input about how the church operated and how they worshiped and what went on in the church and for instrumental music specifically um, that became controversial a couple of hundred years later mm -hmm. when people first started to introduce it because it had not that had not been the practice among new testament christians up until then but you know that's not in scripture so i don't know how anybody feels about you know kind of 
using that as, you know, in judgment making and decision making and weighing judgment. But I have I kind of always been interested in even extra biblical writings about, some, you know, in insight on how the church the very early church functioned in various ways, not just instrumental music specifically, right. but just in a lot of ways. But I'm yeah. not saying we can use that as authority from God, but I do think it's instructive. Right. Yeah. I think if we, if we can see how the, the early, we do that with, with acts with the early church and some of the epistles, but yeah, historical information does, does help. And I, and I think we'll, we'll see that in a couple of minutes. Tommy. A couple of things. Um, when we were talking before about the Urim and Thummim and Nehemiah 7, which is also in Ezra 2, um, we were talking about that. That wasn't an extra. That was simply when they used the Urim and Thummim that was just viewed as a way of God speaking, of God communicating, because in Numbers 27, um, when Moses inquires, excuse me, Joshua is going to inquire of Eliezer, the priest who will inquire by the Urim and Thummim, that was considered the message of God in Numbers 27, uh, 21, and that whole context. And in Deuteronomy 15, uh, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 19, before, forgive me, Deuteronomy 17, uh, uh, when there, when you didn't listen to the word of the priest, because they would listen to it and not to go to the right or left, Deuteronomy uh, 17, 11 says that uh, the one who disobeyed the penalty was death in verse 12. So what, what you see in those instances is that's not a that's not something new or out. This has always been a way that God said He would communicate with the people through the priest, through the prophets in the Old Testament. So uh, it's you know the fact that um, they're waiting for an established priest of the Lord to do this isn't um, waiting for something extra. Biblical and that and that and that's not to use that's not the same way that Ann just used the term. Right. But yeah. um, and and we have stated in the Old Testament worship was more uh, specific. I don't know if we were living then if we would say that. Now there were specific things like they had an evening and a, a morning and evening burnt offering. For example, in Exodus 30, and he tells things to do, but you don't see a detailed. They, they, Leviticus 23:3 mentions uh, a worship service on the Sabbath, but you don't see the details mm -hmm. of that. I don't know that we would have said that if we live there uh, any more than you know. So I don't know that it really was that more specific. It's we've we've looked back and we've seen. Uh, we say that we say that from our perspective as ones who don't live under it. But mm -hmm. I don't know if they would have said that really. More concise, maybe, or more with or 
organized, right? Good Leviticus, right? Um, no, that's a fair point. And, th and that, that really is what I was trying to communicate with the Nehemiah 7 example here is that in the absence of, of uh, authority, uh, waiting on the Lord um, and, and not being presumptuous to act without authority. Mitch. So to Tommy's point about maybe they wouldn't have thought it was all that detailed, uh, like something that quickly popped into my head when he said that is there was a, you know, you had to, I'm going to butcher this, but you might have to offer a goat for one thing, but if you couldn't afford it, then you could offer turtle doves. Well, what, what constitutes couldn't afford? I mean, that, that's a judgment call. Um, so, yeah, I, I had never thought about that, Tommy. Other thoughts? We got Deborah. Um, I was thinking about um, <clears throat> how with the um, waiting for the authority and the silence um, and correct me if this is not even appropriate at all, but my, my mind went to Matthew 25 and that um, parable of those three servants and like the one who said like, I know you're so strict, you know, or whatever. And so I just buried it and did nothing. And then he was called like the wicked and lazy servant. So I think my heart got a little bit nervous because I started thinking about that. Because um, I very much want to honor and reverent and do what God asked me to do. But I don't want to be a wicked, lazy servant who just sits here and does nothing because I'm afraid that he hasn't given me authority. So I don't know. My mind went there. So for me, maybe to try to boil this down, with these passages in the Old Testament, I'm fine with those things, and they do show the character of God. I understand that completely. They they're examples of those things. But I almost feel like sometimes we're trying to use this to verify a system of verifying the New Testament. In other words, silence is our system. Let's read the Bible and use this silence of the scriptures thing to determine what to do and what not to do. And we go back and say, see, these, these examples prove that this system is what we should use. And I think I feel the same way maybe about the command example inference. We've, we've developed a system with all of its exceptions and rules. I mean, there are... There are dozens of those rules in that system, and then we worship the system, it appears. We come to conclusions and say it has to be this way when every one of those, not everyone, but the ones that we have all the exceptions, it has to eventually, no matter how far down the road you go, it has to eventually be a judgment call. Somewhere along the line, it has to be a judgment call. Based on what? based on the system of rules, or based on the gospel, based on the theology, based on God and who he is and what he has done for us. And that's where some have mentioned, I think, a principle-based view of the Bible. And just looking at the passage, the context, and Jesus himself, and determining what that passage means for us. So the... Command example necessary inference. Uh, I would disagree that that's a system. I think that's inherent in all communication. 
Well, that's so, the only way to communicate. That's the only no other way, way. So I agree that it has to be used to right. some extent. But I'm saying all the exceptions and the things that we add to that to get to the final rule. I don't. I just. I just don't understand. Can you give me an example on that? Uh, sure. We we read something and we say, well, if it's a cultural thing, then it doesn't apply. We read another one and we say, it it doesn't apply to us because it was a specific time or a specific person it was applied to. Uh, there's, you know, as far as the inferences, you have to you have to infer, you know, and say, well, this is implied in that. That is a judgment call, no matter what you say. There's no hard, fast rule or way to say that that is exactly what has to be inferred. So there's many, many other exceptions that have to go down through the line uh, on every one of those. So um, certainly there are things that we can look in Scripture and say that's right and wrong, right? Many other things that we can look at and say, we've got to use wisdom and discernment. Um, so uh, I agree 100% with that. I don't know if there's anything else I've said that would lead you to think that I'm saying everything is, is a hard and fast rule. So if I, if I communicated that, um, we have to, you know, we, we serve the king. We want to be pleasing to the king. He has revealed himself to us in his scripture. We, all I'm saying is that through command, example, necessary inference, and through biblical silence, we, under, we can draw conclusions on what is the appropriate way to approach the king uh, in worship and otherwise. Is, uh, I don't know if that's a, a different way of saying that, or, or John, you got a, a comment? I don't I, I just wanted to talk about briefly the greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay. Uh, I grew up in southern Indiana and um, lived in Indiana all my life. And I just know it has not been a cultural thing that we, that we greet one another with kisses. But I believe we greet one another with a holy kiss every time we come together and we extend our, our warmth and our fellowship with one another. I know if we were in other countries, we would do the uh, double you know, cheek kiss because that's how that would be expressed in a different way. But I think the, the instruction that Paul gives repeatedly to greet one another with a holy kiss is fulfilled when we, when we interact with each other in a close, intimate, personal way whether it actually involves the, the lip kiss or in, a, in another fashion. Right. Brad? Um, yeah, and I, yeah, the, I mentioned that one just because we all kind of agree that, that there's a principle there that we have fellowship and unity with each other. Um, but in order to arrive at that, we have to apply something other than command, example, and inference, right? We have to go, oh, culture comes into play and my 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 only point with that was sorry my only point with that was um we do have something else besides those three elements that we're using to to try and understand what god wants from us um and i thought what deborah brought up was a really interesting story about the man who knew that his master expected a return on his investment if you go back and read that, he, he knew that. 
And what he did was he went and hid it in the ground. So he confessed himself that he didn't do the very thing he knew his master would want him to do. And so, um, you know, instead he just hid it in the ground because he was afraid. And he, and Jesus says, the master comes and well, I'm going to judge you by what you just said. You just said, you knew you could have put it in the bank. You could have invested it in the market. You could have done this. You could have gone and bought this and resold it over here. There's a lot of broad um, authority on how he could have done that. But the one thing he couldn't do was to just in fear, go and hide it in the field. And that's the one thing he did. Um, and so I do think, I don't know if that, uh, sheds any light on any of our discussion, but I thought it was, uh, good what Deborah brought up. So, and then I think Lisa had it. I also appreciated that thought, um, from that scripture being brought up. And it made me then also counter that with, we can go too far. And I think I really appreciate that everyone here is very aware of and very respectful of not going too far. We don't want to cast out demons in his name and do wonderful things in his name and him say, I never knew you. We, we know that. We read that in Matthew 7. We don't want to go that far. So we really want to respect and approach him with humility and only wanting to glorify the king. I'm so thankful for that. Um, how, come we're not, how come we're not listing casting lot as an option? What's that? How come we're not listing la casting lots as an option for anything? <laughs> we don't ever do that. Why don't we do that? I don't know how to do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm at a loss of words. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Interestingly enough, though, in Acts 2, or Acts, at the end of Acts 1, when uh, it was time to choose a new uh, apostle, um, they did not do so. They knew the qualifications. They had two men. They did wait upon the Lord. Um, Jesus chose the original 12. Jesus chooses Matthias to be Jesus' replacement as well. So um, that's interesting. Um, so... Um, so the question then that, that we, we need to be thinking about, there are, some, there are some things that are outside of the authority that we have been given. How do we, how do we handle those? How do, we, how do we decide, is that something that we have judgment to, to move forward with? Or should we be um, restrictive and wait until we understand what the will of the Lord is on a matter before we, we move forward? Um, so I wanted to talk about a little bit about the Lord's Supper. And so, like, why is it, and this might be hard to read, um, why is it then, or where is the biblical authority for the Lord's Supper? And so I just jotted down a few things, did a little bit of a brain dump in terms of passages that I would go to to say that we have authorization to partake of the Lord's Supper uh, on the first day of the week. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, in seven, three times in that, in that uh, chapter, it talks about the emphasis on coming together. We, we read last time in Acts 20 and 7 on the first day of the week when they gathered together to break bread. There was a together aspect of it. 
in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, it talks about the collection, but the presumption or the, um, excuse me, the implication there is that they are gathering together on a weekly basis. And it is during that time that they would take the, the collection. Acts 2, where we see um, the Lord's Supper being talked about at the end of the chapter, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, would have been um, on a Sunday. So that's really on the next point, right? So, so what are we to do? We are to be coming together. And I think multiple scriptures support that. What are we... Uh, what do we do? We're to partake of the fruit of the vine and the bread. Uh, we see that very clearly in Matthew the tw- uh, 26. We see that very clearly in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34. When are we going to come together? Um, I believe Acts 27 uh, verse 7, Paul was with them for multiple days. They waited till the first day of the week. Um, I believe that on Pentecost when it talks, that's on, the, on Sunday, the first day of the week, where it talks about them um, in, a, in a worship context. Um, again, in first, uh, first Corinthians 11, when they came together in 16, again, I think the, the inference, the understanding that we have is that they came together on the first day of the week. Uh, that's when they were to do a collection. That's when in, in first Corinthians chapter 11, that they came together to partake of the Lord's supper. Um, I mentioned Acts 2. I mentioned Acts 20. There is significance just in the resurrection being on Sunday, um, the day of Pentecost, even beyond kind of uh, the establishment of the local church there, um, and we see God adding to the universal church there, we see um, that they, they partake of, uh, they broke bread together. And then kind of to Anne's point earlier, um, multiple extra biblical historical references talk about the habit of the Christians uh, in the early church was to come together on the first day of the week uh, to break bread. Um, that they, they did it every week uh, on, on, the, on the first day of the week. And so we, we talked about this a lot last time. Um, so I just wanted to bring this, bring this up. What Brad said was true that but when Jesus established it, it wasn't on the on the first day of the week, but it anticipated the death, burial, and resurrection that did happen on Sunday. Um, And then when it was enacted uh, um, in a group of Christians together on Pentecost, that would have been, would have been a Sunday, right? So should we feel, well, I'll just speak for, I, so I feel super comfortable that we have the authority to come together as God's people today and every Sunday to partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, Mitch? So in the last, last class, you kind of brought up why would we not um, partake on a Monday or a Tuesday? And so I, the way that I would answer that is it depends on what, how you, what principles you take out of the verses that you read that have to do with Lord's Supper. So I would argue that 1 Corinthians 11 talks about coming together and that the purpose was for them to come together to break bread. I think I could make that argument for Acts 20 and verse 7, um, that the purpose was them to come together to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so if, if, that is the print, if that's the principle, underlying principle, 
then those are the only two things that would need to be um, fulfilled. Now, we might, we might disagree on, are there other principles that we take from that? Um, and so that would determine whether we could or could not do something differently than what is being done. Hope that makes sense. I think that makes sense. Um, so maybe maybe the, the question wouldn't be why would we not do it on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, or Thursday. What would be, what authority can we look at in Scripture for us to gather on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday to, to partake of the Lord's Supper together? Where would we go to in Scripture to say this is pleasing to the Lord for, for us to do this? And so this would be, in my opinion, an argument for biblical silence being something that would, it does not give us the authority to do that. So, again... I would go back to the, the principle. If the principle is those are the two requirements that we are coming together for the purpose of that, I would, I mean, I think we see uh, times in Scripture all through Acts where they were gathering together on days other than the first day of the week. Um, and they were breaking bread. Now, again, that's maybe another going down another road um, is there significance on Sunday I, absolutely I see I would say that 100% is there significance of the Lord's Supper because of the resurrection absolutely where I might not draw the line is that it's commanded, and that's the only time that we could do it. Um, if we are fulfilling the principle of we're gathering for the purpose and we're, doing, we're coming together, maybe the day is not as significant as we might always have thought is where I would stand. And so I guess I would say, and I, you know, are we, are we commanded? I would say scriptures show that we have the authority to do it on the Lord's day. And I don't see in scriptures where there's any other day where the Lord's people come together for the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Coming together um, at other times, absolutely. I just can't go to any scripture where I can see the example or infer that we can do this on a daily basis. And so I think it's a question of biblical authority. Um, how do we determine biblical authority? Bob? I think the uh, thing that we want to be hold close to us and, and protect always is our mindset towards being pleasing to God. And with some of the things that, that we do, we don't have a lot of information 
but if we can look in the pages of the New Testament or overall in God's Word and and see approval obviously when they came together uh, on Acts 20 on Acts in Acts 20 they were they were under the the guidance and participation of an inspired apostle mm-hmm. and so we asked the question was God okay with that gathering and if we come to the conclusion together that certainly Paul wasn't going to lead him astray right. then I think it's okay for us to follow that mm-hmm. and beneficial for us to follow that that we might be pleasing to God because that's that's the example that we saw there right and I, I, I just think we need to constantly have that in mind mm-hmm. uh, when we think about this thing. That's a very, very basic, right. to me, a very basic principle about being pleasing to God is try to look at see and see what what was God thinking about what was going on. It was it, was it something that he would have been pleased with because we're trying to reproduce that because right. many years have passed and... and uh, we we need to be careful and not let those years cloud our vision that if that pleased God that day, it would please him this day mm-hmm. because there's been no change. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on this? Besides Brad? Just kidding. Okay. So um, the the day that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper inconsequential in your mind and the, the fact that I'm just, I just want to see if I can rephrase what you said just to make sure I understand it. Um, that, that the day that that was instituted, not really consequential, I, uh, and instead look pointing forward to the resurrection when he would eat it again and the, the theological significance of that day um, hold so much weight that you feel like the the day Jesus instituted it is not holds no bearing. Is that would that be fair? Or maybe correct me what I'm put, where I'm putting words in your mouth. Yeah, I would say that in the context of a local assembly, when we when we we look at those contexts, I feel like we have authority to do it today. Oh sure, yeah. That that's what I'm saying. Like I feel, and I think we should feel really comfortable about that. Oh and yeah, personally. Hundred percent. Yeah. To do it another day, I'd be very uncomfortable. I'll be honest with you. Oh sure, uh, me too. I think where maybe my distinction would be, and I'm, I, I will not put any words in anybody else's mouth, but um, condemning everyone who who does it on a different day. Um, do I have biblical basis to do that? I don't know that I have, me personally, I, I wouldn't be able to turn to a scripture and go, you are sinning because you wanted, you decided to do that. Um, I know people do it on their wedding. I would be a little hesitant to, to boldly condemn that. Again, that's just, um, but everything else I feel like obvious that meeting on the first day of the week to take the Lord's Supper is just has so much uh, significance around it. Yeah, and I would say that, like, our focus is on, like, what we're doing as a family um, together. Um, and I'm not considering anyone else, right? Yep, Tommy. I don't think the fact that it was instituted on Passover is inconsequential. The Bible 
for all that could have been written is a brief book for all that could have been written. Mm -hmm. So everything has significance. Right. Everything is important. It's not that the fact that that is inconsequential. If we're going to use that and say that is our guide as far as time when we partake of it, that means we partake of it once a year. Right. Because that is all that Passover comes around. Right. And it does seem that early Christians took it with greater frequency than that. Paul said to the Corinthians, as often as you eat and drink. And we see the example in Acts 27 where you find them taking the first day of the week. Yeah. You don't find them taking on at special occasions like when Philip baptized the eunuch, they don't take the Lord's Supper. Right. Or they attend a wedding that they take of it. They take of it a special time when they come together. But I think the question for all of us is, and this has been done multiple times throughout history, and this was um, the goal of people a few hundred years ago to say, let's just take the Bible and do what the Bible says, and where does that lead us? Mm -hmm. If we want to just take the Bible and, and know what we can do to be the Lord's people, to be pleasing to him, where does that lead us? And that is the goal, always to just look at his word and see where it leads us. Do we? Right. Okay. All right. Um, shockingly, we did not uh, make as much progress as I had hoped. And for all of those who want to listen to this later, if you're having trouble sleeping, you won't be able to because it wasn't recorded. So I, I remember reading, like in the middle of reading a passage, I hit record. I don't, I don't, that's. We recorded it upstairs, Mark Ryan. I'm sorry, you're not getting out of this. What's that? We recorded it upstairs. Oh, okay. Oh, well, then what am I worried about? There we go. Okay. All right. Well, okay. So lots of conversation. Um, you know, we got to wrestle with this. It's a, it's a struggle. This is, I think, part of striving for the faith together that Ephesians 4 talks about. I think these are the, the difficult, um, just deep conversations that we need to have. And so um, let's, uh, let's talk about where we're going to go. We're going to talk uh, a little bit about the purpose of the local church. Um, I, I feel like I'm saying the exact same words that I said the last time we talked about this. So apologize for that. Um, why does the, the local church uh, exist? Uh, that, I think, informs uh, our conversation as well. And then I had sent out some homework uh, in terms of passages that deal with how the local church spends its money. And it'll be thinking, looking at all of those, um, you know, I think, it, do patterns emerge? Where do we have authority? Where might we be limited in our ability to spend money um, in First Timothy 5 and other places. Um, and then, we're, you know, we're going to continue to just kind of try to knock out these questions. Thank you, everyone, for your, for your comments. And uh, we, will, we will send out expectations in terms of the next study later. All right, thank you.